0: Hi there and welcome to New Books in South Asian Studies. I'm your host Ian Cook and today we're talking about the Pariah Problem, caste, religion and the social in modern India. The book is written by Rupa Vishwana and is published by Columbia University Press in 2014. Rupa is Professor of Indian Religions at the Centre for Modern Indian Studies at the University of Göttingen. Now the so called pariah problem emerged in public consciousness in eighteen nineties in India as state officials, missionaries and upper caste landlords among others struggled to understand the situation of Dalits, those subordinated populations once called untouchables. In the book, Rupert unpacks the creation and application of this so called problem over time and across different settings. Now, in the interview that follows, we're going to explore the ways in which land, labour and ritual combine in producing the pariah, the effect of Protestant missionaries in reshaping pariahness and the role of the colonial state and changes in house site ownership, among other issues. This book is really amazingly rich in detail and it's theoretically dynamic throughout. I think it's relevant to numerous discussions in present day India and in in many other countries as well. I really hope you enjoy the interview. I had the pleasure of speaking with Rupa just a few moments before. Okay, so it gives me great pleasure to welcome Rupert to New Books in South Asian Studies. Let's dive straight into the heart of your book. Uh, the book is called The Pariah Problem. So what is the pariah problem?
1: Well, in the late 19th century in Madras, Ian, you basically have a population that's enslaved by Indian landowning elites, kept in miserable conditions, treated as outside proper society. And yet, they're the ones performing the most important uh, revenue-generating agrarian labor of the Indian colony. So given that slavery had recently been abolished and, you know, was deemed widely deemed unconscionable by liberals, this situation in India came to seem wrong to colonial officials and members of the public. So it, it's actually quite strange, you know, because it's the very first time that this had happened. This group had existed in this way for at least several centuries, but Suddenly, unfree Dalit laborers emerged as a source of concern for the colonial state. And uh, elites in India, both Indian and British, called this concern the Pareya problem. So that's what the Pareya problem is. And then both officials and non-officials tried to figure out ways to make it go away. Um, So the book really takes that moment, that emergence of the Pareya problem as its starting point, and then tries to see what happened uh, in the next 30 years. What what did people think was really the source of the problem? And did everyone agree on what was wrong? And, well, the answer, of course, is no. So, mm-hmm. so you have competing groups of elites, British and Indian, you know, officials and non-officials, a few of whom were actually trying to, you know, free Dalits from what was de facto slavery. But the majority were working hard to make sure nothing was altered because if Dalits had actually been freed, it, it really would have amounted to a revolution. I mean, n- neither native elites nor the majority of colonial officials um, wanted anything to change much because Dalits were the source of this um, this most important um, part, portion of the revenue. Um, and then there were Dalits themselves, and I tried to document this as well, you know, people who had very limited means at the time, trying to make their understandings of uh, what was wrong with their situation be reflected in official policies. So, you know, the rather depressing conclusion that that came out of my research is that although the problem, the paria problem was raised, you know, almost immediately elites stepped in to make sure that lasting solutions um, would not be put in place by which I mean such things as, you know, the redistribution of land. So the book's not actually about solving the Pareya problem. It's about the means by which its solution was prevented. And uh, even though causes were obvious, even at the time, um, there was widespread denial among Indian elites about how ubiquitous oppression, violence, and landlessness actually were. So so that's what the book tries to do. Um, But... Let me just say something about the term itself, Ian, the, the pareya problem. When I first encountered it, I was struck by both words. So pareya is and was a, a very disrespectful term. It's often used as the term of abuse. And this was true for most uh, names of Dalit subcasts across India. Uh, and then there's the second half. <clears throat> you know, the, the idea of conceiving of a group of subordinated people as a problem. I mean, this is you know, conceiving of them as a problem rather than the society which gives rise to them, right? So, so in fact, at just about the same time as the Pariya problem was being formulated in India, it's it's interesting, uh, W.E.B. Du Bois, in his um, work, The Souls of Black Folk, also referred to the fact that, that it was peculiar and unjust uh, that in the U.S. at the time, Blacks were referred to as the Negro problem, right so so in other words, in the term itself, uh, there are these deep prejudices inherent, and we see the effect of these prejudices working themselves out in the years after the term was um, was coined
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. wonderful that's really set us up well for the discussion. Into all the different chapters of the book. But before we before we do go there, I was wondering could you tell us first a little bit about yourself? What's your academic background? What led you to write this book and how did you go about doing it?
1: Okay, great. Um, well I I began to think about these issues in the late nineties and early two thousands in New York. And at that time, uh, the name of the game was postcolonialism, uh, post-colonialism, really. And at the heart of that was the priority given to this unequal relationship between the colonizer and the colonized. And this was, of course, very important at the time. And it was, you know, a very effective um, riposte to Eurocentrism in some pockets of the academy, which was quite unabashed, you know. But in a certain sense, giving priority to that relationship, which in the case of India could also be glossed as sort of white versus brown, is in fact also Eurocentric, right? So it it makes the story all about Europeans, albeit in a a kind of condemnatory rather than celebratory way. Um, And it also flattens out and homogenizes colonized society, which was highly differentiated, especially by caste and class. Um, and you know, one effect of this kind of colonizer colonized binary is it associates all Browns with victims of oppression, which is very far from reality in the Indian case. On the contrary, most people of Indian background in the Euro Academy, Euro American Academy today, um, belong to the to the very groups of elite castes and classes which my book shows were essential to ensuring that things really didn't improve for Dalits. And this became very clear in the course of my research. Um, so that's one um, set of issues that, that I was trying to work against. Um, the other thing I should mention uh, about the intellectual climate when I was starting out is, is about uh, the colonial moment being seen as representing a kind of radical break. This is, of course, linked, you know, to the idea of white versus brown with the coming of colonialism, you know, in this line of thinking, everything changed dramatically. Now, this is, of course, true in some respects, you know, with respect to religion and interreligious conflict, it's quite clear that things changed very dramatically during colonial rule. Uh, You know, the idea of a pan-Indian Hindu or Muslim community um, was really new. But the division between Dalits and their oppressors is really a different matter. It it really cannot be wished away as an effect of colonization, you know, uh, or or as a kind of um, uh, outcome of divide and rule, which is how elite nationalists uh, have tried to portray it. And yet, when I embarked on the project, I definitely got some reactions that suggested, you know, that studying caste or studying, you know, the sort of Dalit non-Dalit divide was hopelessly outmoded and basically orientalist <laughs> so um, thankfully things have changed a lot since then
0: <laughs> Great, okay, let's let's get to the book itself, um, I think three things that are, that are really key um, for understanding the whole book are land, labour and ritual, so I was how do these three things combine, land, labour and ritual in producing the pariah?
1: Um <clears throat> Yeah, thank you. That's th- those really are the the three most essential things I think. Um and and so, so you can start by asking yourself, you know, what did it mean to be a Dalit in 19th century madras? And the three elements you mention were essential and the book tries to show that they were all equally essential. So in saying that, I'm actually you know, rejecting the uh, Dumontian, you know, there's a, a or Orientalist view of caste that sees caste difference as stemming from ideologies of purity and pollution. So there had been critiques of that sort of view, certainly, but I would suggest they had yet to sort of sink into the historiography. Um, so, you know, with respect to the first of those elements, land. Well, the division between non-Dalit and Dalit was a matter of land because Dalits had none of it. In India's agrarian uh, heartlands, Dalits were actually prevented from owning land, and this is unique to Dalits. So other low castes were not actually barred from owning land, even if, you know, in many cases they couldn't afford it, and they were not enslaved. Um, So that's land. Then this gets us to the second of the three, labor. Well, for Dalits, there was lots of it, (laughs) very poorly remunerated and extracted by force, by threat of force. And as for the third term, um, ritual, what I mean by this is the enforced ritual subordination, which was central to being a Dalit. So Um, You know, how one could be dressed, what food one could eat, how one had to address one's landlords, all of these had ritualized forms that had to be followed or violence would be the result. So, um, my point in the book is that what being a Dalit means is not just being an untouchable, you know, which is a term that's often used, um, if by that we mean a person who's despised as impure for some sort of ritual criterion, for example, because they you know, deal with, with death or with animal skin, the root of the problem, which is still you know, the key issue for, for the majority of non-elite Dalits, is, is domination, the, the control of labor and the monopolization of land by the other castes. Um, so, to sort of think about this from again from the perspective of theories of caste, you know, were people dominated and enslaved because they were impure? I don't think this makes a lot of sense. I think they were dehumanized and called impure because they were powerless so So the ideology of impurity serves to justify their enslavement, so um hope that answers your question.
0: no, mm. oh, definitely, definitely <laughs> does. One of the other sort of key play as uh, in your book of the Protestant missionaries. So I was wondering if you could tell us like, what effect did these have in, in reshaping what it meant to be a pariah or parianus, as it were?
1: Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, uh, first of all, I think you have to understand that missionaries were working under very peculiar kinds of constraints uh, when they encountered these Dalit populations in India. On the one hand, they, you know, their mandate was to convert large numbers of people, but on the other hand, they really didn't have either the resources or much knowledge um, that would allow them to do this. And they started off initially hoping that you know, they could convert the, the upper strata of Indian society and everyone else would follow. But they found uh, to their to their deep disappointment that Indian upper castes and classes were basically quite indifferent to the Christian message. You know, they, they, they could hardly secure many converts. The only people that seemed interested in conversion were Dalits. Um, but for missionaries, the problem was that that these Dalits were extremely needy financially and because of this poverty, missionaries were wary, you know, they, they, they weren't sure if they could be entirely trusted to be converting for so-called pure reasons of spirit alone. So missionaries feared that Dalits might be more interested in the material goods that missionaries could provide access to. So that was one sort of set of worries that they were working with. Now, at the same time, um, the caste people for whom Dalits were working we're growing increasingly suspicious about these allies Dalits were making. And these were, you know, by being white and relatively well-off, these were prestigious allies. Um, and they were very wary about conversion impacting their own ability to control Dalit labor. So in this context, missionaries came to formulate an idea about Dalitness that I um, would argue is still very much with us today, um, namely, the idea that the core of Dalitness is actually a matter of religion. So um, I, I suppose I wouldn't say that missionaries reshaped um so much as they introduced a new, uh, a new definition, and what would become a very influential definition, um, whereby you know the the sort of brute realities of domination and exploitation were seen as secondary to this basic fact of some kind of spiritual lack. Um, and from then on, Indian reformers, as much as missionaries, would focus on improving Dalit souls and habits rather than altering the material circumstances of their lives. And this, you know, this links back up actually with what I spoke about before about how the phrase Pareya problem kind of subtly locates the problem as being within the Dalit community itself. Right. So the so the, the spiritual definition of parianas that missionaries helped to popularize um reinforced this view that the source of the conditions under which Dalits lived was actually Dalits themselves. Um and their ills would disappear according to this logic if they just could be made to improve themselves, you know, for instance by, by being taught um hygiene and how to worship properly, you know. Uh, and this was the sort of crusade that would later become a centerpiece of, you know, Gandhi's um, campaigns uh, to to reform untouchables with his um, Harijan sevak son you know. So so interestingly, there's a kind of thread of ideological continuity between missionaries and Gandhi, despite one being Christian and the other Hindu. Mm-hmm,
0: mm-hmm. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, is, is it one of the other key players is of course the the state or the the colonial state and in the middle part of the book you deal with two very well one very interesting policy and one ideology so the policy was that of religious neutrality and the ideology is that of of new liberalism so i was wondering how did these two ideas or policies intersect with what 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 you're calling the pariah problem
1: yeah okay um great um so very rightly, you know, you separated those two things. Um, so I will speak about them first, a, a bit separately. So, so when I when I'm talking about religious neutrality, um, my interest is really in how, um, because of the existence, you know, of this promise uh, made by Queen Victoria in 1859, she, she she promised at that time to refrain from interfering in native religion. This became a kind of invitation <clears throat> for native elites to construct a, really an impregnable fortress around whatever was agreed upon by those in power to belong to the sphere of religion. Right. So it was a it was a way of negotiating um, the limits of governance. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mentioned before that, that caste in general, you know, when we were talking about how missionaries defined it, caste in general and Dalitness in particular came to be defined by religion. So put these two things together, native elites were able to claim that practices of isolating Dalits spatially, for instance, um, which was, of course, you know, a potent means of literally cordoning off laborers and controlling their movements, they were able to claim that these were actually religious requirements that it was the state's duty to respect and leave alone. Um, So the doctrine of religious neutrality uh, was in fact used to enable continued labor subordination long after slavery was legally abolished in British India. Um, And it was also used to thwart other kinds of new policies that were put into place. So this is where the, uh, the issue of the new liberalism comes in because new policies were, were brought in um, as a result of the popularity of ideas of new liberalism. So, what is that? What is new liberalism? The, the 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 movement that I'm talking about refers to a, a kind of constellation of ideas that emerged in Britain in the 1910s, which suggested that intervention was actually necessary for securing the social good and for economic fairness. So it was this it's this idea that the market couldn't. Um, actually secure fairness all on its own. And there was there was some need for regulation. Um, and the other thing that the ideas of new liberalism introduced was that specifically that it was the state's, um, it, it could legitimately be the state's role to intervene in this way. Um, so missionaries were able to, uh, who now had, you know, hundreds and thousands of uh, Dalit converts under their care, Um, and wanted more welfare programs to be put in place for them, missionaries invoked this new liberalism um, to suggest that the state ought to do more for Dalits with respect to landlessness. So this led to a kind of joint um, state missionary project to resettle some Dalits, really overall a not very significant number, but some Dalits were resettled on new lands away from their former um, their former masters. And of course, this led to uproar on the part of landlords and the whole issue of religious neutrality was then raised again, you know. So this time, um, Indian landlords... Um, criticized the state for essentially what what they claimed was subsidizing the conversion of Indians. And now this is quite ironic because, um, you know, Dalit's religion had not been anyone's concern prior to this. You know, so so um, when we think about all the controversies about conversion in, in modern India, you know, there was a time when really no one even pretended to care what the religion was. And that was the case. So this was kind of the first time that landlords um, evinced concern for the spiritual lives of the laborers that they employed. Um, and most of now, most of these, you know, missionary led settlements did not really last long. You know, they were poorly funded. and um, um, they, So they didn't have a sort of, lasting impact but what happened at the time which is really interesting is that the state actually the, the presidency of Madras actually did allocate uh, a, a relatively significant amount of land specifically for dalits um which is remarkable you know it's a remarkable measure and had it been enforced it might have been you know the motor of of really radical social change and um but it, but it was not um assigned and and um legalized properly and most of this land today has been you know illegally usurped by other castes.
0: Um I suppose one of the key issues that, that comes out towards the end of the book is, is the struggles over changes in ownership over house sites. You discussed this in, in chapters 7 and 8 and these were really really were key sites of contest. so why did ownership over house sites prove to be so contentious? Uh,
1: yeah so for the sake of those uh, not steeped in agrarian history, I should say what a house site is, you know, for a Dalit laborer. It, it, it's, of course, quite literally where they built their huts. And for official purposes, this land was classified as state property and um, Dalits could not be ousted from it. And um, it was one of the practices, uh, at which is still quite widespread, that Dalits lived, you know, inland uh, separate from all other castes. So no one but Dalits would have even wanted to build their houses there, right? So so according to colonial law, Dalits should theoretically have had rights to their house sites in perpetuity. In practice, however, um, landlords were able to successfully claim that they owned these sites. um, And they had done this in pre-colonial times with the backing of pre-colonial states. Now, why would they even want to make this claim? Control over house sites was a very powerful tool of labor control at the time because if a Dalit laborer displeased his master in some way, um, he could be threatened with eviction. Now, this might not sound that severe, but at the time it was a grave punishment and it was every bit as effective as other threats like, you know, withholding of grain payments or even torture and beatings, because where could a Dalit laborer and his dependents without capital or resources go? You know, perhaps to a, a relative's village to seek employment there, but there was no guarantee, of course. So something like eviction could well result in slow and steady starvation. Um so so you could imagine how how effective the threat of eviction was as a tool in enforcing obedience. Um so at a certain point the colonial state recognized that this was going on that that landlords were claiming to own these sites and using them to threaten eviction and so on. And um and what they tried to do was to enforce what was already legally the case the fact that Dalits could not legally be evicted. Now, this led to a huge backlash again from landlords and a number of instances of violence. And I think one of the most interesting things about studying the records on this issue is uh, how much they illuminate something about what Dalits themselves might have been um, imagining was going on because it shows how eager they were to take chances, even quite risky ones, to alter their conditions of life and work. So when colonial officials offered a scheme to help Thalits um, secure ownership over these house sites, they didn't really expect much of a response. You know, they, they had this vision of dalits as basically, um, you know, uh, mute and um, resigned. But to their absolute surprise, they were flooded with requests for assistance. So this is this is very important evidence, you know, against the view that was very common in elite circles at the time, which was that Dalits were basically, you know, if not happy, certainly resigned to the status quo. Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, When I was reading your book and then you, as as you get to the end, you, you, you turn it to a little bit to talk about, um, the way in which the book is is relevant uh, to some discussions in, in present-day in India. I would say, sadly, relevant uh, to discussions in present-day in India. So, I was wondering, what do you think the implications of your book are for such ongoing debates?
1: Um. Well, yeah, uh, I'm always um, eager to hear what other people think about that too. But what I think are are the um, implications. I guess let me just stick to one very important implication, Ian. And this is what you know. What most ordinary people think about when they, today in India, when they consider how the state helps Dalits is the policy of reservation or, you know, it's affirmative action. This is the Indian term for affirmative action, which allocates percentages of seats for Dalits and some other groups in, um, you know, representative bodies in the bureaucracy and in higher education. So Uh, You know, you have in the public sphere commentators spilling a lot of ink, discussing whether or not it's working, whether or not it ought to be scrapped, whether or not it's being implemented properly, which groups it should extend to, and all these other sorts of details. But this kind of intervention, you know, seats in colleges, for instance, I mean, consider that most Dalits hardly make it out of high school. So it's a tiny minority that can even avail themselves of these supposed benefits. And more importantly, this kind of intervention was was really a, a tiny element of what Dalits who were politically active um, when these policies were first being mooted. You know, it's it's a tiny element of what they recognized as being essential for producing lasting change in in Dalit lives. And this is also the case with what people other other people were thinking and writing on these issues in the period that my book describes. No one assumed that by having you know a few Dalit representatives and uh, you know a few Dalits in a university that things would change for the majority of of the Dalit um, subpopulation, and and it was really widely recognized that one of the most important um, areas of need was land. So um, you know that that's in the book. So so what we have today in in current day policy is this highly attenuated reformism, you know, that unsurprisingly has done nothing to change the relative position of Dalits to other castes, because it was really never meant to. I mean, debates go on as if this is all that state intervention can mean, and violence against Dalits also is continuing unabated. But but what I try to show in the book is that we've ended up today with a highly ineffective form of intervention that was really doomed from the start, because it it essentially represents a compromise between the colonial state and, um, native elites. Um, yeah, it's a compromise with native elites and, you know, pardon the pun, it's, it's also compromised the future advancement of bullets, you know, so it's a, it's a compromise in both senses.
0: <laughs> this is, this has been a, yeah, a real wonderful discussion. I hope, uh, I hope the book does raise, uh, Yeah does generate a lot of debate um, when people when people start read it more and i really enjoyed reading it. I'd recommend it to everyone, not only who people who are interested in South Asian history but other questions of um identity and or subpopulations and so on. I know sitting here in Budapest when I was reading it, I was thinking a lot of what people phrase here as the Roma problem or the gypsy problem and many and many and many similarities there. So I think it speaks to a, a lot of people and it's we've only spoken really about um, sort of the key arguments in it. It's a really you know, rich book in terms of its details as well. So really I'd urge listeners to to check out the book itself. But my final question for you today is now that this book is out, what are your current and future projects?
1: Um, great. Thank you. Um well <clears throat> uh first to quickly say about your, your comment about the Roma, I mean that's that's very interesting and that's something that I'm interested in you know this is the most inchoate of the future projects and it's really just thinking about building an intellectual network of people who who will work comparatively and globally on issues of um um inherited inequality you know so so that's a a sort of global caste race project is something that um i see as a a kind of intellectual forum that that i plan to set up next uh, in the coming years. Um, more specifically, in terms of my own personal uh, projects, there are two projects I'm working on, and they they both allow me to keep pursuing some of the themes that emerged in the earlier research. Um, so the first one is on the relationships among um, anti-Dalit violence, the welfare regime, and politics in post-colonial um, Tamil Nadu. And basically, I try to see how the state, under different political leaders, addresses Dalit citizens in two modes, the, the everyday, you know, through the welfare regime, and then the spectacular, namely in the sort of crises provoked by large-scale anti-Dalit attacks, also known as, you know, atrocity in Indian legal parlance. And I try to trace how these modes of address have led to ideas of the people uh, being reconfigured in this period, which is, you know, from the 1950s to the 80s. And something that came out in the course of the first book was how, you know, these these everyday sort of um, quiet but um, repeated actions of bureaucracies could actually thwart the law. And this is a theme in this research as well. Um, And then the second project, the second um, sort of project that I'm personally involved in, it, it goes outside of India. Um, to look at new forms of political action and political representation among the ex-indentured Indian diaspora in Malaysia. Um, And I've just spent the last year in Malaysia working on that. And, And it allows me to focus squarely on a theme that also appears, although briefly and at the end in the first book, which is the problem of minority representation in modern democracies and how that is linked with questions of, of labor subordination, of um, religious difference, and, of course, of, of racialization.
0: So. Well, they all, they all sound like uh, wonderful projects. We look forward to uh, reading the fruits of those sometime in the future. Uh, there's not, nothing much more for me to do today, apart from to thank you again for coming on New Books in South Asian Studies. It's really been a pleasure to speak with you.
1: Thank you so much, Ian, for having me.
0: Thanks so much for downloading the new Books in South Asian Studies podcast. I've been your host, Ian Cook, and today we've been talking about the Pariah Problem, caste, religion, and the social in modern India by Rupa Vishwanath. I hope you've enjoyed our discussion today. I hope you go and check out the book for yourselves, and I hope you'll listen again next time. Ta-ra!